When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, welcome to The Tapping Go. My name is Matt. My name is Freddie. Each week we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals and we get their views on the latest sporting issues. Hey guys, welcome back. Matt and I are here. Hope you're all well this morning. Today we're joined by an England legend with almost 200 premiership appearances, five games to the Lions. He's opened his own restaurant number three and of course he captained England in the 2007 World Cup. This is of course the raging bull himself, Mr Phil Vickery. Phil, how are you this morning? I'm uh, very well, thank you. No, lovely to be on. Good to have I'm looking forward to having a chat. Yeah. It'll be good. Well, I guess they recently announced that there's not going to be any grassroots rugby until 2021. What sort of effect do you think this will have on rugby as a game in England? Um, I think it's probably, for me, um, one of my biggest concerns because I know there's been some talk yeah, this week in papers and you know uh, Premiership rugby clubs talking about going bust, you know, without any fans and things. But kind of the the traditionalists in me thinking I fell in love with the game of rugby, going to my local rugby club, who are so dependent to the grassroots. You know where where I come from, where, where it all started for me. I, I'm worried, but not, but actually not just rugby. I think you know sports. Um, centres in general and, and uh, it, it's, it's just a, a real, real worry and I think, you know, our game uh, you know, needs uh, keep bringing those next generations through you know, you need to, I've got a, a son who plays and really enjoys playing rugby um, uh, and I think the challenges around that you know, the well-being, mental health camaraderie, uh, part of your club, local community, you know, a rugby club, I keep saying to people, a lot of friends of mine who aren't rugby fans, I say that's fine you don't have to understand rugby but the rugby club in its community is so so important and it's a yeah it is a real worry it's a concern but you know that i don't know the answers i just think but also longer term for our game too you know we get in habits and uh, you think by the time rugby potentially is going to come back online for um you know general public as far as amateur rugby is concerned you know, we've learned to do different things on Saturdays, on Sundays. 
uh, you know, training on a Tuesday or Thursday, whatever, you know, and suddenly it's like, actually, do, do I want to go back to rugby? You know, so that's that really does concern me. Mm. And obviously, focusing more on you now, you had a career with lots of highs and some lows, and one of the biggest lows would probably be that tour from hell um, at the late 1990s. Obviously, you went on that as, uh, as quite a young player. How did you sort of take the experience as such a difficult introduction to professional international rugby? Um, I think... For me, it was a fantastic experience because, you know, I'd never been to those countries before. So it was a little bit, you know, I was, what was I, 21? Uh, I'd just been capped uh, that February. I think I got my first cap uh, against Wales in February and I was 20, which for a prop was in those days in 98. That was, that was a big deal. Uh, I think I got banned because I punched somebody. So I missed the I missed the following game or two or something something like that happened, and then I was on tour to uh, you know go to Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. You know five weeks, and we played um, we flew straight into Australia. No warm up game. Played Australia first. We lost seventy six nil. So that was my second cap for England, and it was Johnny Wilkinson's first cap for England. Believe it or not. Um, so if you could imagine, first up, first off. And only I, I will always remember about that game or anything, apart from the fact that I remember chasing shadows and not really seeing seeing anyone in an Australian shirt. I remember there the, the, the were sponsors. I think it was either Castlemaine or a, a beer. There was definitely it was a beer sponsor or Bundaberg or, or something like that. And for every time the Australians scored, they had to do press-ups. So like there's 15, 20 guys on the side of the pitch doing press-ups every time Australia scored. I just remember it got into the second half and they had to stop doing press-ups and go to the set-ups because they couldn't do any more press-ups. And that always sat with me. But then we went on to, to New Zealand and you know we played the first test in Dunedin. Uh, Tane Randall was captain at the time um, and got beat, but it wasn't quite as bad. I think it was like, I say it wasn't quite as bad. I think it was like 40 or 50 points. And then we went to Auckland. It was actually Sean Fitzpatrick. He had a testimonial game because he'd retired. And uh, I just remember that's the first time I played against John Olomu. And I remember seeing John Olomu. And uh, I remember seeing him on the field and thinking, you know, wow. And I actually tackled him in that game. And I felt quite proud that I put him. Uh, I think we lost. I don't know. It was thirty. It was it was less than the first test. Um, uh, we played New Zealand Maori. I think it was midweek or an A an A game in Hamilton. Um, John Mitchell, who was actually forwards coach then, and funny enough, is now coaching back with England. Uh, he threatened to shoot us all. He said if we had a gun, he'd shoot us all. That was that was so. That was a fantastic experience. And then we finished off in South Africa, and we lost eighteen 0 in Newlands against the. Uh, uh, a decent South African team, and it was. I think you, you go through those experiences, and and, you, and what what happened certainly for me was I came back. Now it's actually quite easy to come back and go right. Do you know what? It doesn't really matter. It was wasn't a full strength team. Uh, you know, it, you can still be a superstar at your club in Gloucester. It's a small small town. You can be a big fish in a small pond, and no one really mind. Or you can look at it and go, actually, right. That's what the best look like. What what do you want to be known as? What are you what you know? What, what what's what's your real ambition here? And I think uh, not necessarily not exact words, but I think it was the same for Clive Woodward. When you think what Clive did, 
post that tour, we had the 99 Rugby World Cup, which I was involved in. And really, after it was, although the game went professional in 96, it was still amateur professional all the way up really into a 99 Rugby World Cup when the foundation stones started to be set. And really once 99 Rugby World Cup was out of the way, that was then when we started, um, uh, you know, forwards coach, but it's scrum coach, line eight coach, defensive coach, um, more analytical, um, just like the, really the footprint, really, which is now a professional rugby and Clive, you know, Clive started that. So, that tour, although it was a, it was a terrible experience uh, as a as a player and as a human being because of what happened, actually, it it kind of showed up or it showed me or it made me actually evaluate and look at what you know what am I about because I always say to people I'm getting quite deep now I don't mean to get deep but if I had to give some advice to people you know what we, we there's some tremendously skilled fantastic athletes got all the skill sets got all, but it's about what's inside you and what's going to drive you and the higher up the ladder you go no matter whether that's business or, or, or sport or whatever it is it's about but, but it's what's inside there which will get you there yes of course you need the skill sets to go with it but it's, it's what's there so if you're just going to do you know the bits and in that classroom and tick those boxes and uh, KPIs and don't you don't don't touch anything and we'll all be safe. It's a load of old rubbish. You know you've got to if you want to progress and want to get on in the world then you've got to push yourself. And uh, I know I waffle on a bit, but it was just it was a fantastic. It was a horrible experience in the sense of what it was, but actually for me it actually defined I think me and my career and what I went on to to achieve from that. Absolutely. So, so I remember one thing that was um quite sort of prominent within that tour from hell is that there was quite a lot of influence from the press and sort of negative press in particular sort of talking about it. How did you find as a player sort of, I guess, generally throughout your career and at that time sort of the, yeah, the press and how it impacted your game? Um, I think the press is, I think I, I feel slightly um, lucky in the sense that my career, you know, it, it's slower. Like today, things happen very, very quickly and overnight. And you can be kind of nobody and then suddenly thrust in the limelight. And it's kind of, you know, you're expected to know these things, let alone like social media and people being able to get hold of you and, you know, wanting to have a footprint in that world. So, but I, but I remember, you know, when the press, obviously, it, it hurts you. And, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you will hear people say, you know, I don't read the press. I don't, I don't take any notice. You bloody well do uh, because it's there. People remind you of it all the time. It doesn't matter whether even like that, you know. I, to put it in perspective, my last game for Gloucester Rugby was in 2006. 2006. Yeah, I think it was 2006 season, five, six season. I still get abused in Tesco's now when I go shopping if Gloucester aren't doing very well. And that's just Gloucester because they see you in the event. But I think I feel lucky that because I came up and it was slowly and it wasn't quite as mainstream and social media, I, I, I was protected to a degree. But, but I also was um, quite quiet. I didn't kind of bite too much on stuff. Um, and uh, you just learn to deal with it. I think the hardest, the hardest ones were um, actually it's based more on your family because your family um, read it 
and um, your family get upset. And like when you, you know, when you're a, a, yeah. a twenty. 20-year-old kid and your mum's phoning you up crying because she's read articles from a certain journalist, you know, that that's more upsetting than the, you know, than the actual article. And also a bit later in life with children and, you know, the kids are quite cruel sometimes and things they say, but it's all part and parcel. I treat people the way I want to be treated. You, you, there is an element of when you're, when you're in that limelight responsibility and with that comes the fact and you can't have it both ways you can't have it one minute you want to be known and famous and you know uh, commercial activity and be profiteering from it and then suddenly two minutes later oh i don't i never asked for this so i'm kind of i take what is up 99 of journalists and people were pretty good um, it's slightly different for the guys now because people can make personal attacks on you through so many more different channels, and um, which is different. But like I said, I, I was always fairly good. And actually, I had a great relationship with the press guys. I used to have good fun with them. You know, and even like, to, you know, today, you know, I, I consider someone to be, not like you phone them all the time, but friends and people that you knew, you, you interacted with each other. It wasn't for me, it wasn't like a them and us too much. It would, you know, you were kind of all in it together. You know, they'd go away on tour with you. They'd be there for the whole time and they understood you and you actually got to know them as human beings. Mm. So we'll move on to the slightly more positive aspects of your career. And obviously 2003 must have been, or probably was the best moment of your career. Um, then obviously in 2007 you led the England side. We were wondering what sort of did it change from being a player in a final in 2003 to being the captain in 2007? Oh uh, yeah, well it's interesting. I was actually with Martin Johnson uh, in the week, and we were talking about stuff. And I, and I still say to this day the one of the most nerve-wracking experiences I think I've ever had. Bearing in mind, like, captain England, we'd won a like Barbarians games. Uh, which were the warm-ups and tours and things were like 2001, 2000. And I'd done bits and pieces there. I'd captain England against Argentina in Buenos Aires when John didn't go, and we beat them over there, which was an amazing um, uh, game to be involved with. And I remember Dave Flatman was playing a really, really good game. And uh, Steve Thompson, it was just, anyway, but the point about John is I remember being in the World Cup 03, and I got asked to captain England against Uruguay because Martin was rested. But I was so nervous. And I said this to him uh, on, on Thursday evening because you have all your peers there. So bear in mind at a time in that team uh, that, that we were in, you know, when you think about captains, so, you know, obviously Martin, Lawrence Delalia was there, Neil Back was there. Uh, Jason Robinson was there, Johnny Rookins was there, Mike Cat was there. We that you, you, everyone was there, but he chose me. And I remember the final, like the end of the week before the game, like the Friday night before the Saturday, was sat wherever the day was. The, the, the coaches um, do their little bit, and then they leave. They leave the captain to, to speak to his players. So you can imagine me looking around that room with all the big guns in it, and me being me. Uh, and just being myself, I, I just didn't know what to say. I won't tell you what I said because I don't want to use bad language. But it was it was to the point of, you know, we were under some pressure. Um, the coaches had done a fantastic um, presentation. We'd done a little bit of a, a you know, movie, you know, the soundtrack and all the good bits. Got a little bit of feel good, and I was pumped. You know, I was like, you know, I'm ready to go. To, I'm ready to go to war here. And I remember saying, I won't use exact words, I said, when Clive and the coaches left, 
I just want to say along the lines of, you know, whatever they've said means nothing. It's about us tomorrow going out with a smile on our faces and actually really enjoying each other's company and going out and playing rugby. And I was literally, that was it. It was 30 seconds. And all, and all the boys got like that, yeah! <laughs> and I kind of, it always sat with me, you know, and people, uh, I don't know, I, but, I, but I am very much me, and that's not right necessarily wanting to like or whatever. It's just I, I'm very authentic to, to me in the way that I lead and the way that I captain. Obviously, you've touched on that, but obviously, can you talk through the so Rugby World Cup final game tend to kick off later in the day or, or in the evening? How do you as a player sort of go about what happens in the, during the day of the final? How do you keep yourself occupied? Um, I think by the time we'd got to um, the final, you know, there are lots of very sore bodies. Um, training actually is very tapered. It's, it, you know, you're not learning new skills in training. You're not coming up with huge amounts of different variations. You're looking at subtle uh, plays or opportunities where there might be somewhere you could exploit as a team. But you, you're just, all you're doing is getting yourself physically, mentally, ready to go out on Saturday night and pull up trees really that that's what it's about I don't think, I don't think we, we didn't scrummage that week what we did it was just more about timing but I think it's long days particularly the evening kickoffs um, I was lucky because Clyde was very proactive with the girlfriends and wives and my girlfriend was with me now wife so she'd come out so at least I had company and Kate we could go and do things and walk but there's only so many walks and cups of coffee and but the problem, the problem with the final week, particularly the final couple of weeks, you couldn't go out anywhere because you were mobbed. You know, we were staying over at Manly, uh, the Manly Pacific, it was called then. I went, I actually went there about 18 months ago when I was over doing some work. And I actually caught a ferry from Sydney, went over to Manly, went to the hotel. That was the first time that I'd been back. And I forget what it's called now. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, still, it's still there, but it's a different name. But it was just, you just have to be careful. I think some of the best advice... Uh, I was given and I would always give to any aspiring athletes, uh, girls and boys at any level of anything is you have to be so careful because you lose so much energy up here. It's not physical, it's up here. And if you if you can learn to cope with that and, and be quite, um, sounds quite boring, but you've got to be so strict because it's just about conservation of energy. Understand your roles, running through in your head, what's going on, but also resting, sleeping. And for me, probably the wrong thing to say, I like doing other stuff. Do other things. Go out. Go for a meal. Have a glass of red wine. Have a beer. You know, take your wife out or your girlfriend out. And go. Just go and be normal. Or if you just become institutionalized because you, you, you're that into it and it's that you know the detail you know everything's sorted out it was an incredible environment to be in but it was a pressure cooker too so and there was a lot of humor going on amongst the boys you know lots of banter lots of messing around um but it was a it was a tough one i remember being exhausted i remember being exhausted the meant that just the mental toughness uh, and uh, uh, it was just an incredible an incredible experience to be part of so I guess you've touched on Clive a few times. Um, what was your experience with him as a coach? Because obviously it's a bit of a hot and cold for some people. Yeah, well, but, but, but listen, I think we all need to wake up and smell the coffee sometimes when it comes to coaches because not everyone 
gets on or is best buddies with the coach. We all have differences of opinion. We all, you know, don't necessarily always agree. And that's the same, you know, Clive, as a coach, he was on the field. He had a vision of what he wanted. But actually, the coaches coached. Clive managed, and he, he, you know, and, and for me, he did a, a fantastic job. He he was. I find Clive very straightforward. If you're prepared to give everything you've got, he will he will give you the best thing. So that was his thing. You stayed in the best hotels, had the best treatment, best foods, best coaches, best kit, best the best physio, the best training programs. They you know, no one talks about Dave Redding and the fitness guys. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, they were just unbelievable what, what, what he got us um, and, and the way that he treated us. The trade-off was, is you had to do it. And I think I had a great relationship with Andy Robinson, uh, Phil Keith Roach, our scrum coach, who was just, he was just one of the best human beings I think I've ever met that you just want to run through brick walls for. And then and suddenly you start voting on, you know, Dave Allwood, you start Brian Ashton, my involvement. He was one of the best coaches I've ever worked with, Brian Ashton. He was unbelievable. And then Clive at the top, you know, overseeing all that with, you know, Simon Kemp and the medical team, Barney Kenny uh, and all those guys. And it was, it was a, it was a team effort. And uh, yes, I got on really, really well with Clive. Um, you know, we don't come from similar backgrounds, but we share the vision. Whatever anyone says about Clive, he wanted to win. And do you know what? I wanted to bloody well win as well. And he gave me a confidence and gave me the tools to be able to be the best that I could be. And I, for him, I would run through brick walls because he backed me and he, he identified this Cornish, slightly Springer Spaniel, enthusiastic young lad who's a tight head prop. And said, "Right, well, I, 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 I like him. I'm going to invest in him. I'm going to give him all the tools, and I'm going to give him the opportunity. You've just got to step forward and, and, and put the shoes on and go and, and take it with you." So, and if I was to phone Clive up tomorrow and say, "Clive, I need your help," he'd be there, the same as I would, the same as Martin was for me last week. You know, and I think that's a, a special, you know, a special sign. It's with you know. Would Clive methods? You know, we we spend off Clive's methods where it didn't work in two, you know, two with the Lions tour and. Well, yeah, no, it's not. I'm saying it necessarily fits all, but don't underestimate. Even when you look at professional rugby that is today, that blueprint of professional rugby is still what Clive started. You know, twenty years ago. Now that's that's remarkable. I think it's you know that that's he he was he was way ahead of the curve. Mm. And so obviously the 2003 guys who obviously you went on to win, you were also close because most of you've been in the tour from held under. Were there any stories like how close you guys were, especially like after winning the World Cup? Can you talk us through the emotions yeah. you went through? Well, I think it was just a very very special time, and um, you know. The reality is, you all go about your business. You all go about your business when it finishes. But I think the opportunity, and it's probably the wrong thing to say to you guys, but you you remember the rugby, of course you do. You remember the the occasions, and I will never forget the the, the stadium in Australia for that final. And I'll, and I'll remember it not for rugby. I'll remember it for the fans. You know, the white shirts, the flags. It was just. 
incredible. And I, w- I wasn't particularly nervous about the final because you, you, you kind of there and you, you, I wasn't, I didn't think about it. It was just the fans. But thinking about the lads, it was more, it's more like coming home and being able to celebrate with people and you're a world champion. And, you know, coming back to Heathrow, that experience at Heathrow and the people. And I, you know, and I said to Martin, you know, I remember the security guy, we got off the, off the we, because we flew on a, um, a BA plane, but it was full of, you know, fans and people. And that World Cup was going up and down the, the plane. It was like a big party on the, on, and I remember someone saying, well, perhaps if it gets, gets, I said, where's it going to go? We're on an airplane. It can't really go very far. So the, the World Cup's going up and down. Everyone's there and they're coming back. We arrived at Heathrow. And I remember a security guard coming and saying, um, that we couldn't, he was, it was something to do with safety because of the amount of people that were in the terminal that wanted to see us. And he said, you're not allowed in there. But you can imagine what Martin Johnson said. I won't tell you what he said. I just remember him grabbing the World Cup and walking around the corner. And he said, we are going through there. And we were walking around the corner and just tens of thousands of people just going mad. And that's what, I remember, and I remember going to Buckingham Palace, and I remember doing the open top bus tour with all those people in London. It had never been done before, you know, all the people there, going to Downing Street, meeting uh, Tony Blair and, you know, the PMs and all of them. It was, and for me, you know, being sat in Winston Churchill's room at number 10, or his favourite room, I'm sat there going, wow. You know, walking up the stairs with all the, the Prime Minister's pictures as you go up in time. It was just magical. But also from the guys' point of view, this is going to sound really weird to you guys now, but when I meet one of the lads that I won the thing with, the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. Even now talking to you, the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. And I can't help it. It's because you've done something super special with super special people. And I know I'm emotional and I know you know, all that kind of stuff, but it, uh, that really means something. Like, it's a, it's just something which, because regardless of what everyone says about you and the people, like, you you do things on a rugby field for people that you can't explain to people. And people say, oh, don't be so silly, Phil. What are you talking about? You know, but, but they know, you know, they know, and you know. I don't mean fighting or biting somebody or whatever. Like, I've done plenty of that, but... That you've gone, you've gone beyond. You've gone above and beyond the call of what just being a teammate is about, and you help someone without their lowest, and you know that you know they're in it. You know they're in the shit, and and you're there for them. And I and I, I think that's a, and probably the thing that you miss most. And that doesn't that's not just at international level. That that's at all levels of of, of rugby, and that's a special thing. That's a special bond. And, you know, you'll never forget those moments. You'll never get them back. You know, it was that moment in that time with those people. And it was just the most amazing, surreal experience to have been part of. You know, if you could imagine the conversation that I had with my mum, who was the lady who who sort of drove me around the country in our little fiesta, up and down, doing their kids' trials and all the stuff which people never see and talk about too much. And I'm sat, you know, on the phone to my mum, and uh, she's at home in Cornwall, and I'm in Australia and Sydney, and I've become a world champion. It's like, wow. Special, special memories. 
I guess in, um, in your book, you mentioned sort of this world 15 that you put together, so a list of 15 names, um, starting off with Jason Leonard, Sean Fitzpatrick, Oliver Brown, Martin Johnson, Ian Jones, Richard Hill, Billy Calder, Zinzan Brook, Gareth Edwards, Michael Liner, Joan Lowe, Tim Horan, Jeremy Gosker, Jeff Wilson, Jason Robinson. Would you add or change any of those names today? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But, but listen, you can. I could spend days thinking about. Um, uh, and you think there's loads of others, but it's just. I'm very blessed to have because I was young when I started, so I actually played against people I watched on BBC Grandstand, who were my heroes. So I caught the careers of like a Jerry Gusker who I watched as a kid. I just managed to play with Jerry because I was a baby coming in the team. And, you know, I managed to, 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 to play against like Brian Moore, but like it's at club level, not international. So I crossed over with some some really special people. And the reason I put like Finley Calder and Sean Fitzpatrick, I just caught Sean Fitzpatrick. Sean Fitzpatrick, I played for an England select team. That was the autumn of 97. He was trying to get back to fitness with the All Blacks touring. He actually played, I played against him then at Bristol at Ashton Gate. So he was like a heel. So I used to watch him as a kid. I actually played against him. But one like Finney Calder, the reason I put like Finney, because I remember watching the Lions videos. And I remember watching the Lions video Australia. I think it was 80, 89. Uh, like Living with Lions or whatever it was called. I just remember hearing him speak. And I remember watching some of the BT stuff. I remember thinking, wow. Never met the guy. I've met him since to say hello to, but I've never met the guy. I was thinking, I want to play with you, sunshine. God, I'd play for you. And then I remember seeing the BTs when you had, you know, like Wade Dooley, you know, fighting someone, and Mike Teague, who was a hero of mine, you know, there, and Robert Jones, and all those guys, and Gareth Chilcott, and, you know, it was just, I don't know, just, you know, I'd love to have, I'd love to have been around, you know? Yeah, but there's there's so many. Players. I mean, the the, the I say the best player I've ever played with. Some best player for different reasons, but one of the best rugby players I think I've ever graced the field with. Forget about John Alomu because I didn't play with him, play against him. But Jason Jason Robinson for me was one of the, well, he is the greatest rugby player I think I ever played with. Mm. But then he was kind of a hero of mine before that because I used to watch him playing for Wigan. So I used to love watching Wigan play and, and watch, used to love watching rugby league. So, you know, I'm just very blessed to have played alongside uh, and with and against, I, I think, some of the all-time greats of our game. You know, and I feel very, very privileged to have done That's that. That's really interesting. Well, it'd be criminal of us to have you on and not talk quickly about cooking and food. And obviously, it's a big passion of yours. Um, can we ask, like, why cooking? Is there, are there any parallels that you draw between rugby and cooking? Um, well, I think, you know, where I came from, particularly where I grew up, uh, down in North Cornwall, uh, you know, the Butte Rugby Club is very, is a, you know, views a very rural town. But I think rugby in general in Cornwall, Devon, is very much based around rural, which, you know, farming and rugby are very, very closely linked. You know, they're, they're huge parts of the community. And I think, yes, it's not cooking and obviously going on doing MasterChef, but, but I think they're the same people, quite passionate, 
they care about what they do. I've always cared about what it is I, that I do. And even today, I've just been up the road for me a couple of miles and went to Jamie and Guy because he's just started keeping some Gloucester Old Spot sausage and I'm, and I'm up to see, uh, some pigs. So I was thinking about the, the Old Spot. And I'm thinking about the number three in a restaurant chat. I'm thinking, right, you know, it's all low impact. He's got some uh, Gloucester cattle, which he's just starting. And my love of food and cooking actually comes from, uh, you know, being that farmer, you know, growing up with, you know, my family farm, having my own gardens, growing things. Um, I was always very, like, a, I'm a husband in the sense that farming was never, I never really got off on driving tractors, although I enjoyed it. It was more about animals for me, and I like to make things and breed things and, and, and see an end product. And uh, the, the, that side of, yes, and I love cooking. Of course, I love cooking. I love, I love my baking, and uh, I just love making I think John Trode summed me up uh, really well uh, at the end of MasterChef when he said, Phil loves to cook to make people smile. And I think, do you know what? I, I do. I love making things or doing things to make people smile. Nothing makes me happier like being in restaurant. Like I was in restaurant last night and you've got a table of six in of a family and then they, we, because it's very much about a small place and sharing. And there's conversation going on, talking, chatting, eating good food, people laughing, smiling, talking and I love that about food I love the whole bit I like to know where my foods come from I like to like it to be cooked well of course textures flavors contrasts but it's people you're with and friendships and beers and wines and drinks and juices and it's the it's the it's the whole bit really I just I, I, I just love food it doesn't matter what it is I don't you know I don't it doesn't bother me because it's a ham and cheese sandwich because I'll tell you what, a good ham and cheese sandwich is a beautiful thing. I don't look down on food. I just I, I just love everything about food. And some of the stories, boys, I tell you, you know, even like today, going and seeing Jamie, he's got a little small hogging up there. Um, just started out, he's been you know, dry stone walling Cotswold Stone his whole life. And to cut along, I'll tell you his life story, but he's, he's still working heavy horses. He's got heavy horses up there. And he's, he's working heavy horses. He's still got the, he's got his plough, got his harrow, got his, and then you look at the, the, gloss, the, the old spot and pigs, and then you look at, he's got some gloss of cattle, and he's got some, and you think, you know, but it's, it, no one really knows about him. And he's all, he's all about low impact. He wants, it's about environment. It's working with the countryside. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just love that. Like, like at restaurant, like the guys who, I get all my fish comes up from Cornwall. And well, I'll take you a step further back than that. I got a, I got a, I got a message from a guy uh, from uh, who does char charcuterie, Dutchy charcuterie. A couple of years ago, it was. He said, "Phil, would I give you? Would you give me a post? I haven't got very many followers and stuff on Instagram. I'm, I'm quite new to it. I don't really understand it, but I, but I do a bit." I said, "I'd be placed prop place number three in Red Roof." So I'm like, uh, of course, we'll put a post out for you. To cut a long story short, I'm now selling his char charcuterie in restaurant because he's doing an amazing job, started his own business, doing it himself. He's winning awards. And then I had another lady ring up who saw that my, my breakfast, uh, my Phil's breakfast was going to Blackford. And why have you got no white pudding? Well, the Primrose herd in Cornwall is just down the road from Mark. She's sending up white pudding because you can't have his breakfast going out without any white pudding. So she's selling that up. And the fish, the poor Philly shellfish boys who, who, who are in the Camel Estuary there, you know, producing some world-leading oysters. And 
that's in my restaurant. You know, I had someone uh, last night, I had a, had a, a monkfish on the bone. Uh, we, we, we cooked mm-hmm. the grits on the bit. And I want to come back next week for that. Well, you might not get it because it's all day boat. It's what's caught and comes mm-hmm. up, you know, and all that story, you know, I know I go on and people laugh about it, but that, I, it just, I love that. It just makes me feel so good inside that mm-hmm. all the girls and boys of people producing, making some of the most amazing things. And you can eat it. Completely. Well, Phil, I think that's a great place to finish. All about that. It's really fascinating. I understand why your love's so great. But just on behalf of me, I'm Matt and all our listeners, we'd love to thank you for coming on. It's been really great talking about food and rugby. Yeah, who knew you could join? No, no worries. Love, love, lovely chatting to you guys. Really appreciate it. If you ever need me any other time or you want a voice, or you just get a hold of me. Happy to help out. But stay safe and, and look after yourselves, okay? Buddy, thank you very much. No worries. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.